This is usually the time where we dismiss kids. We're not going to do that. Kids, don't leave your living rooms. Stay with mom and dad because we're going to dive into God's Word. But this is a great time to go online, put a picture of your family worshiping, greet each other. We'll adjust the camera a little bit. And this is we'll dive into God's Word. We're going to start with a question for the whole family to answer, though. So let's get settled. Um, Start turning to Daniel chapter 9. Great chance to do that right now. Turn to Daniel chapter 9 as we talk about prayer that moves God. Prayer that God hears and responds to in an active way. I'm going to pull up my phone because I actually want to see some of your answers on... um, I'm on YouTube, right? You're on Facebook? Okay. And see some of those to our question this morning. But the question I want to start with that hopefully some people in the room that are part of the live stream will answer first to give the delay time for people to answer online... What makes a good apology? In your home, what makes a good apology, right? Because there can be bad apologies. Fair? Well, that's going to be my second question is what makes a bad apology or how do you know if an apology is insincere? But what makes a good apology? If you're online, then please type in those answers in either YouTube or Facebook. Um, if you if you don't have access to either of those, text AJ because he's Pastor AJ. He's here with a microphone. And he's going to feed me some of the answers. But someone in the room, what makes a good apology? Sincerity. Okay. Yeah, an insincere apology just isn't an apology. It's, it's sincerity. What else? Admission of wrongdoing. I'm sorry because I, I might have hurt you. <laughs> I'm sorry you feel that way. Yeah, that's a good I'm going to use that one. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry you made me do that. Oh, yeah. Okay, what about some of the kids in the room? What makes a good apology? We have a couple kids here because families of live stream are, are here because we don't leave two, five-year-olds and six-year-olds at home alone. We have a, a Facebook response. Okay. It is from Kristen Martinez, and she says, Sincerity and a change, all caps. Sincerity in, and a change, okay. In attitude and or actions. Okay, good. That The change part, Susie mentioned too, because she got to hear the question ahead of time. Mathia. Being honest to your parents. Being honest to your parents. Yeah, and especially in an apology. You don't want to lie in an apology because then you have something else to apologize for. And Yeah, absolutely. Saying sorry. Yeah, so we, we do have to say it. We have to verbalize it. We have to be sorry. And that goes back to the sincerity. Let me see if there's any on YouTube. Tone. That's from Mark Johnson. I know him. Um, tone matters, right? A change in actions. Heather, um, Andrea, out of love. An apology should be done out of love, not out of spite. Um, Pastor Andrew says eye contact. Eye contact. Ooh, that's a good one. That that is, because that means you're genuine. I mean, that that I think speaks to the sincerity as well. If you can speak to that. Emma, Emma Gilmore says, "Putting yourself in someone's shoes." Yeah. Okay. Starting to try to understand it from the other person's perspective. Okay. Let me switch gears. And I hope we can be interactive this morning and keep us awake, even if you're watching on TV from a comfy couch. What makes a poor apology or a bad apology? And I know we could just do the opposite of all those things, but maybe like, like I'm going to take Terry's for a minute, sincerity. What does insincerity look like? 
Because we would say that insincerity then must make a bad apology. But So think of it that way. Think a little bit uh, deeper. What, what makes a bad apology or a poor apology? Saying sorry when you don't really mean it. Yeah. We've never had anyone do that. Um, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, sarcasm. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. If I have to say it, I will. What else? <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, oh, I need to say it. Saying sorry while you're looking at your phone. Sorry, I was looking at my phone. <laughs> See, I just said that, yeah. Be- ben Zausel says sarcasm. Sarcasm, yeah. Um I, I, sorry, some of these are great. Um, someone from my family again, eye rolling as you apologize. Not good, right? Um, <laughs> Pastor Andrew, not apologizing is a really bad apology. Yeah, you run away as soon as you say it, Teresa. Um, Liliana, I'm sorry that you dot, dot, dot. And uh, they're coming in. Apparently, we have an easier time answering what is a bad apology than what is a good apology. I, I got some from Facebook. Uh, Jacqueline says that Caleb says looking away from them when apologizing. Celeste says saying I'm sorry, but. Troy Heinrich says repeating the offense. And John Hoisden says blaming somebody else. Yeah. Wow. It's almost like we are a fallen people and we have a lot of experience with bad apologies. I'm going to um, move on now. We want to move to the text because the text is all about what repentance looks like. And, and I'm going to use the word repentance more in the text, but just in terms of our way of thinking, think apology, especially you kids that are, are watching. Think apology. How do we... How do we respond when we've done something wrong and we know we've done something wrong? What does that look like to be genuine? What does it look like to sincerely repent or sincerely apologize? Because we all know what it looks like when we don't. And so we're going to be in Daniel chapter 9. And and if you remember the setting here, this is Daniel after he's been in exile probably about 67 or 68 years now. And so he, he's an older man, probably close to 80 or a little bit above 80 now. And he's been in exile in Babylon this whole time. He has lived through King Nebuchadnezzar. He has lived through some, some short-term kings there from Belshazzar. And so all of that he has lived through. And now he's lived through the Medo-Persian takeover of, of the empire, which I don't know how anyone survives that and stays in authority for the next empire unless he's a man of character and unless God's hand is actively involved in that. And so Daniel has proven himself faithful to God over these 67, 68 years in the most difficult of circumstances. And now we come to the, 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 the text today. And we're nearing 70 years of exile, which we're going to see is significant. That is significant because Daniel is studying God's Word where it says exile should be about 70 years. 
And so he's starting to study God's Word and figure out, okay, what does that mean? Maybe get hope up. Maybe really dive into what should we do to make sure that happens. And so all of that is the setting for chapter 9. And we're going to dig into that a little bit more as we go. But if we had to summarize these first 19 verses, and, and probably the whole chapter, God hears Daniel's prayer of genuine repentance, pleading for mercy and forgiveness for Israel for their sins that led to exile. And God hears it. And, and next week we'll get into verse 20 and on, but we're going to see that not only does God hear, but He sends Gabriel immediately to give an answer to the prayer because He moves immediately on a prayer of repentance. It moves God's heart. And so it's worth exploring today. So we're going to steer away from the apocalyptic, you know, the, the unicorn goats and all that kind of stuff today because we just get a beautiful prayer, a deep prayer of repentance from Daniel. And it gives us an example of what real repentance looks like. It gives us an example to follow of what our heart should look like as we look at our own sin and as we look at God's righteousness. And so today I pray that this not only helps us understand a prayer of repentance, but moves our hearts in how we repent. That it crushes our pride. That it destroys the things that keep us from repenting. And so we get to Daniel chapter 9, and in verses 1 through 3, there's really only two sections we're going to look at today. The second section we're going to break down more. But the first section is verses 1 through 3, and it's the preparation for the prayer. It's before the prayer, and then 4 through 19 is the prayer. But point number one in your notes, and, and if you need notes, there's, um, there's some just, if you go to our website, www.villagebible.com, on the right-hand side, there's the current worship folder and the current sermon notes that you can download. And we'd love for you to follow along or on you, you version. We have those up there. But the first point today of verses 1 through 3, powerful prayer starts in preparation. Powerful prayer starts in preparation. Now we can get into this habit of we, we, we don't pray regularly or prayer isn't, ah, we give lip service to prayer. We pray a little bit, but we don't get fervent in prayer until there's a great need, right? And it's something we can all do. We can all fall into it. But powerful prayers of repentance start in preparation. Genuine prayers that move God start before we pray, which is sort of, it, it feels like a contradiction. But understand and see this in Daniel's character. See this in these verses because Daniel is recognizing the coming to the end of the exile. We're getting close. 70 years is almost done. He sees that in God's Word and so he's seeking God in prayer. I think, I think an illustration of the preparation of this as an elder board when we meet, the first question that is always asked by, by someone, usually the chairman of the board, is, is your heart ready for kingdom work? And that's the preparation, because if our heart isn't ready for kingdom work, it's hard to do kingdom work. If our heart isn't prepared for prayer, it's hard to pray the kind of prayer that moves God. And so the preparation of our hearts, the preparation of our spirits is part of that. Starting at verse 1. Verse 1 gives us a little bit of the historical context, then we jump into the preparation. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, 
I, Daniel, and I'm going to stop there for a minute just to, to think of that history. So we are no longer in the Babylonian Empire. This is right after that Feast of Belshazzar in chapter 5. And then the, the Medo-Persian Empire came in, possibly under the walls through a, a diverted river. And they came in and destroyed Babylon and took over. This is that next year. Because Darius, who quite possibly is Xerxes, um, or Cyrus rather, probably the same person, and this is the first year of the, the reign. And so Daniel is, has been through this turbulent change. He's, he's been through a change of not only leadership in an election, a, a hostile takeover. And he's been through that. And now he's, he's getting to know the new empire and the new regime. So we're around 538, maybe 537 BC for those of you that have your timelines out, which is great. And this is the first year under this new administration. And so then we get to the, the rest of Daniel two, uh, 9, 2, and 3. I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely seven, 70 years. And so right from the start, what is Daniel doing? What do we see as a regular part of his life? He's in the Word. He's in the Word. He probably has the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah. In fact, he says that. He has the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah open, who wrote this to the exiles. He recognizes that it's God's Word, and he's studying it. Now, throughout the prayer, we're going to see also allusions to the, the Torah. And so he is a student of God's Word. So not only do we already know he's a man of regular prayer, regular, consistent, and disciplined prayer. We saw that in Daniel 2 when he's trying to interpret the vision. We saw that in Daniel 6 with lion's den. He gets thrown into a lion's den because of his commitment to prayer. So we already know he's a man of prayer, of regular prayer before this crisis. But now we know that he was a man of the Word. Daniel was seeking truths from God's Word. See, being a person of regular prayer gives the context for repentance, but being in God's Word gives the foundation for prayer and repentance. If we are not in God's Word, how will we be convicted of our sin? Right? If we are not in the foundation, in the truth, then we are stopping the, the, the process of repentance before it can even start. And so if we want to be able to pray prayers that move God, prayers of repentance that are genuine, we need to be in the Word. Now it's really interesting that we don't know exactly where in Jeremiah he was. Um, I think, this is just sort of my imagination, probably Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29 and so, again, they, he's been in exile 66, 67, 68 years, somewhere around there. And what if he opened up the scroll and was reading this? And, and I, think we can, I think I have this on the screen, but I'll read it. Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Now, if I'm Daniel, I'm like, so we're just about there. And Babylon just got destroyed. This might be coming soon. This is cool. This is hope. Then after 70 years are completed, the verse goes, Jeremiah goes on, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. And Daniel's like, that happened. The land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares the Lord. 
making the land an everlasting waste. And so Daniel might be reading this thing. Okay, Babylon's gone. It's done. Are we going back? Are we going back? And then Jeremiah 29, a section a little bit later. um, On the screen, we'll start at verse 12. I'm going to read a couple verses ahead of that. For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promises and bring you back to this place. Yes, I love that promise. And then a verse that we sometimes are are familiar with. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And that verse was a specific promise to the, the exiled Israelites. Saying, if you come to me after those 70 years... If you come to me in prayer, if you come to me in repentance, I still have a plan for you. I still have a purpose for you. I'm going to take you home. And then we get to verse 12, which I've put on the screen, because this is, I think, really important in understanding this prayer of repentance. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You'll call upon me, come and pray, and then I will hear you. And so there's some, some requirements here for God doing this. And one of the requirements is they call on Him. They pray to Him. He'll hear, verse 13, you will seek Me and find Me when you seek Me with all your heart. Right? And so, the, 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 God in His Word, in Jeremiah, says, 70 years are almost up. I'm going to bring you back. But you need to be seeking Me. You need to be praying. You need to be repentant. Verse 14, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes, gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you in exile. So if you're Daniel and you're getting excited, you've seen the fall of Babylon, which by the way, this was all written before this happened. And so you're now trusting God even more because this is the purpose of prophecy. So we know God is real. So we know he's powerful. So we know he's fulfilling what he said. And Daniel's reading this, and he gets to that place, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And, and it looks like Daniel could look around and say, I don't think we've done that as a nation. I don't, I don't see a lot of repentance. I don't see a lot of people that are humbled and, and truly repentant for what caused us to go into exile. That's a challenge. That's a challenge to him because what does he do then? Because he believes God's word. He's a man of God's word. And so that command in God's word is why we get the prayer that we get in the rest of Daniel 9. Because he reads this, he takes God's word as God's word and says, I need to do that. We need to repent. We need to come to God on our knees in humility And acknowledge what we've done sincerely. All those things you talked about, do it genuinely rather than just give lip service to it. Oh yeah, that's our God. And so part of his preparation, part of where powerful prayer starts is being open to God's Word, reading God's Word, and willing to obey God's Word. Daniel was a man of the Word. Then we move on to to the rest of that passage, verse 3, and we get the manner of prayer, which again is part of the preparation. It lets us know where his heart was before he prayed. Verse 3, Then I turned 
my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And you get this picture of one of the other preparations of his heart was Daniel prayed with fervency and humility, with prayer and fasting. And so he humbled himself and he he right from the start, his heart wasn't defying God, but his heart was coming under God and acknowledging the hurt and the pain that they as a nation had caused. First part of verse 3 there, then I turned my face to the Lord God. And this is a really interesting one because the turn to my face, I think, has a, has a, a multitude of, or, or double rather, meaning in this case. It, it means to, I gave my face to. And so it has this idea of determination to look to God for an answer. And so this has to do with fervency that I am going to seek God, I am going to look at Him, and I am going to continue in prayer. But it also, in, in the, the Hebrew idiom, meant to literally look toward God and to look toward Jerusalem in their case where they couldn't be. Now, now I'm going I'm to step away a little bit here because I'm, there's a little bit of imagination and conjecture. But could this be why Daniel was so insistent on praying with his windows open in Daniel 6? Could that prayer that he would not stop doing in Daniel 6 be the prayer for the nations, for his nation rather, a prayer of repentance, a prayer where he is following what what God is asking him to do to turn his face towards me? Let me give you another just sort of cool thing. So this is a little bit of conjecture. I don't know what he was praying in Daniel 6, but this is all around the same timetable. In 1 Kings chapter 8, 48 through 50, Solomon's dedicating the temple and he's praying to the temple. And, and interestingly enough, part of his prayer is what happens if we're carried off because of our sins. And, and he says this, if they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then here in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, maintain their cause, forgive your people who have sinned against you, and all their transgressions that they have committed against you, and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they might have compassion on them. And I read that, and part of Solomon's prayer was an instruction for his people that if they're carried away captive, to pray toward God, to pray toward Jerusalem. And and we don't understand, we don't open our doors and pray towards any direction unless it's prayers of judgment. (laughs) But for them, part of turning their heart to God was a very physical representation of looking toward Jerusalem. And for me, this all clicked. Like That's why Daniel 6 was so important. That's why these two chapters are in here together. We see a man dedicated to praying and following Scripture at the same time. Now for us, maybe it's different. Maybe for us, it's coming to prayer with a humble posture, right? So we close our eyes. And, And kids, that's not because it's sin if we don't close our eyes. We're doing that to try to remove all distractions so we can focus on God. 
Sometimes we bow or some, we bow our heads. That's a sign of humility before God. Sometimes I like to pray on my knees as a sign of humility before God. These are things that we do to try to illustrate our heart is prepared for prayer. And these are good things to do. So Daniel here prays with fervency and humility. I love the end of that, or or even the pleas for mercy with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. He's not claiming, yeah, but, or no, we really deserve your answer. He's just throwing himself on the mercy of God. No merit, nothing in himself earns somehow God's favor. It's just submission to Lord God. Sackcloth and ashes references grief and realization that our sin should lead to grief. And so out of these three verses, are you coming to prayer prepared to pray? In a spot with no distractions, in a way where our heart is ready. Are we coming to God genuinely ready to repent, genuinely ready to hear Him, genuinely ready to talk to Him? Now if we aren't, the answer for that is actually a prayer of repentance. So you you still come to God in prayer, but you say, God, change my heart. God, help me. But this was Daniel's normal prayer that was fervent and dependent on the mercy of God. So now we get into the actual prayer in 4 through 19. And and really we see three parts to the prayer. And point number two in your notes is prayer of genuine, humble repentance moves God to hear and answer. Prayers of genuine, humble repentance moves God to hear and to answer. And so Daniel is going to confess and repent of his people's rebellion. We're going to see three parts to that prayer. We're going to see adoration. We're going to see confession. And we're going to see a petition. Or ask supplication, asking God for his mercy. And interestingly enough, sometimes we use ACTS, right? The popular acronym that we do adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. This prayer illustrates three of those. In, in order, it doesn't have a lot of thanksgiving, but it illustrates the adoration, the confession, the supplication. And so we get to verse 4, and that's the adoration part. And it's interesting that his heart is so heavy, but he still starts in worship. He still starts adoring the Lord. And so, so letter A in your notes, adoration starts with praise and recognition of who God is. Verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, I'm so sorry. No, no, no. That's not how it starts. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. And so he starts with with just an emphatic use of prayer. I prayed to the Lord. There's an emphasis here. I'm fervent. No weak sauce prayers here. But then he reminds himself of who God is. Two things that really he reminds himself of, if you look at that, he reminds himself of the majesty of God. That God is great and awesome. And that's where he starts. That God is above all. That God is the creator of all. That, that God is so completely other from us. And that gets us in the right mindset for a prayer of repentance. Then he also praises the character of his faithfulness and his love. His relationship to his people. That he keeps covenant. He keeps steadfast love. These are familiar phrases in the Old Testament. The, the, the word for steadfast love here is hesed. 
And, and it means a covenant love. And so it's more than just I love you, but it's I love you no matter what. This is the closest Old Testament word we have to agape in the New Testament. It's an unconditional love. And so Daniel here, as he, he begins his prayer of repentance and confession, he starts with truth. The truth of who God is. The truth that God is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. What I love about starting with worship and starting with adoration is it keeps us from just running to God like Santa Claus. That we don't just run to God and say, I want this, and I want this, and I want this. This year, kids, you're probably not seeing Santa, but... um, in the mall. That doesn't mean you're not getting gifts. Okay, that can be taken way off. <laughs> Kids are crying now. <laughs> but you're probably not going to go sit on Santa's lap and give your list. <laughs> and then no kids would ever listen to Pastor Ron again. <laughs> but God is not Santa Claus. God, prayer is not just our wish list to God for how I hope He gives me what I want. And so many times we run to prayer with that mindset. And starting with adoration is such a great discipline to get our mindset right. Right? Make sense? To say, this isn't about me, this is about Him. It broadens my perspective to what His plans and what His ideas might be rather than mine. It keeps me from rushing to the throne of God, but rather coming with fear and reverence and awe. And so we can learn from Daniel. We can learn that he starts, that he starts with adoration. And then 5 through 15, the center portion of the prayer, the longest portion of the prayer, rightfully so, is confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. And, And I want to break down this section to be able to answer the question, what is true repentance? What does true repentance look like? We asked that question at the beginning. You, you gave great answers. In fact, you gave almost every answer that's in this text, which is really cool. We understand what repentance should look like. But let's look at God's Word and see what He says. The first one, verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. But we had to... Because, oh, no, it doesn't have that part. It just says, we've sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly. And the first part of true repentance is confessing. Confessing our sin. We must acknowledge and own. And I, I, would, I, would, I would write that down. I know that word, people, what does that mean? For me, owning means I acknowledge this is mine. This is my junk. I'm responsible for it. We must acknowledge and own our rebellion and disobedience. This is the part where when kids say, yeah, it was wrong, but someone made me do it, or it just sort of, I had no choice. You're not owning it. We're not confessing then. We're justifying. What we see here is right from the start, a genuine confessing. Just a a side note. He's identifying with the sins of his people. There's no proud detachment. This is good leadership. Ezra did this. Nehemiah did this. He's saying we, instead of they all have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. They've all turned aside from their commandments and rules. But praise God, they are not like me or I am not like them. And and there's no Pharisee here. 
We have sinned. I'm part of this. These are my people. And we see that identification, I think, and that lack of detachment keeps him energized on this. It keeps the urgency of the prayer moving forward. It's so important that we understand that we are part of the sin and identify and own that that's us. Just an example I read that I, I really thought was fascinating. A young pastor was preparing a sermon in a study. There's a knock at his door. And someone told him that out in front of the church, a child had been hit by a car. He was informed the ambulance was there. The child was getting help. And so he looked up and said, right after I'm done with this thought, this paragraph, I'll come out. Right? Makes sense. A minute later, his secretary came to the door and announced, actually, it's your daughter who's been hit by the car. The pastor jumped up immediately from the desk, ran to the street, didn't finish his thought. What was the difference? He personally identified with the second case. It was close to home. And Daniel here, as he's confessing and owning the sin and rebellion, he's identifying with it as part of his junk too. And that brings an urgency to it. It's interesting, as you read this list, there's a list of five things in this verse, one more thing is in verse 6, that all are descriptions of his confession. And they build on each other. And, and the purpose of this is Daniel is repenting in a way where it is obvious he feels the weight of his sin. He is not making light of sin. This is true confession. I have sinned, which means to miss the mark. It was a shooting term. Um, and, and in fact, the, the, the Old Testament uses it earlier. Judges 20.16, Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And that word for not miss is the same word that's used here for sin. Because it meant to miss the mark of God's righteousness. To miss the mark of holy living. And he goes on to say, we have done wrong, which had the idea of twisting God's teaching, perverting the truth, calling right wrong and wrong right, which we see every day in the news cycle. It's a contrast to righteousness, which, is, which was often defined by a straight path. This is twisting the path. Then he says, we've acted wickedly. And the wording there is we're guilty. We're guilty of the crimes against, against people, against God. And so he's confessing that... that He's confessing the sin, but he's confessing the guilt that goes with the sin. We've rebelled actions against the king, against the king of kings. We've turned aside from the commandments and rules, basically ignoring them. They don't apply to me. And all of these words compound Daniel's confession. So it is a true, and it's a true confession without any buts, without any qualifications. We have sinned. And when we come to God and understand His righteousness, what else can we say? I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. And then God starts to move because that's what He wants us to acknowledge. It's true. And we stop justifying and, and, and we stop coming up with excuses and we just acknowledge the sin. Verse 6 goes on 
and is admitting that they haven't listened to God's word. They haven't li- even listened to God's warnings about the sin. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. We haven't listened to your warning. We haven't listened to your words. We have sinned. The first mark of true repentance is confessing. Without excuse, without qualification, confessing. Second mark we see in verses 7 and 8. It's verbalizing and agreeing that God is right and we are wrong. Agreeing, I think, is the, the word for your notes. Agreeing. Verbalizing that God is right and we are wrong. I know that's hard to say. It's hard to think. But listen to this. To you, O Lord, belong righteousness. Yours is the right way. You are right. But to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. And what we see here is an acknowledgement God is right. We deserve the shame because we are wrong. It's a comparison of God's rightness and His righteousness to their sin. God's righteousness and faithfulness compared to their and ours unfaithfulness to God every time we sin. Cheating on God every time we sin. Now it's hard to say you're right and I'm wrong, right? That's a great part of a genuine apology though. That's an important part. You're right, and I'm wrong. And our pride makes it hard to say that. Get over our pride. We need to get over our pride and genuinely be repentant. They were a people dealing with shame. Their land had been overrun. The temple had been destroyed. The people exiled. But here Daniel is owning the shame and the validity of that shame. Not getting around it. This again is the no, yeah, buts. But just saying, yeah. I sinned and I was wrong. It's interesting enough just just to, to have some hope in this. Daniel also is starting to weave in some themes that are going to be part of his appeal to God. He's starting to weave in themes of God's righteousness, which means his integrity. And that's the foundation for Daniel's prayer for mercy is remember your promises. Remember the promises in Jeremiah. I'm expecting you to keep your word, God. We will repent and then you will restore. I trust you. And so he's appealing to God's integrity and his righteousness. God's righteousness demands that he punish sin. And God's righteousness also demands that he keeps his promises. Which is why it's so, our God is so amazing. So amazing. Third point, and some of you mentioned this in a genuine apology, accepting. Accepting. Part of a genuine repentance is accepting punishment as right, but recognizing mercy and forgiveness even in that punishment. You know, have you ever had your kids, you're, you're, you're about to give them a discipline, and they're like, well, no, no. And they try to negotiate, right? No, no, no. That's too much for the offense. I don't want to do that. 
I'm, no, no, no. Let's do this instead. And I'm like, well, okay, if that's what you want, that's what we're not doing because that won't teach a lesson. It's my dad's secrets. But we, we, we try to keep the punishment from being something we don't like. To keep the discipline from something we don't like because really a sign of repentance is when we will accept whatever punishment God chooses is just. As long as we're fighting that, as long as we're fighting the punishment, as long as we're fighting the consequences, it's a sign that we haven't come to true repentance. There's times that I've worked with people that have been in open sin and, and we're working through restoration and they're like, but, but here's what I won't do. I won't go and apologize to that person. I won't go and repent in front of the church. And I'm like, well, then you're, you're not at a place of repentance yet. As long as you are qualifying your punishment and discipline, you're not repentant. You're holding on to your own pride. So listen to what Daniel says in his prayer. To you, O Lord, oh, sorry, um, verse 9. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants and prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. Now understand those last verses are referring back to something we even did one time where we stood on both sides and talked about God's blessings and cursings. This goes back to Deuteronomy 28 where God outlines, if you act this way, this will happen to you. If you act this way, this will happen to you. And Daniel here comes back to that and saying, God's doing what he said. This is just. His punishment is right. This is not too much. The exile is not too much. This is not a cruel and a mean God. This is a just and righteous God. And we agreed to the terms. Do you see how that's part of repentance? Is accepting what God has done and accepting the discipline? When we are truly repentant, get this this morning, When we are truly repentant, we don't complain about the consequences to our sin. We marvel that there aren't more. You catch that? When we are truly repentant, we don't complain about the consequences to our sin. We marvel that there aren't more because of the the loving kindness, because of the mercy of God. God is a God of mercy and forgiveness. but he's also a righteous God. And so we accept his discipline and appeal to his mercy and ask for forgiveness. Fourth point of true repentance that we see in this passage, 12 through 15, it's seeing, seeing the sin that was done and where we fall short and acting on it. Seeing the sin that was done and where we fall short and acting on it. The blank I would put change in there. Change. If we never change, we're not repentant. I know I said seeing first, right? (laughs) Cross out seeing, put change there. (laughs) Earlier versions of my notes, it was seeing. (laughs) 
(laughs) And then as I was studying and praying through the passage, I changed it to change. Because listen to what Daniel is saying. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us, by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been anything done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of, our, of the Lord our God. I'd underline that. Yet we have not changed. We have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. We haven't learned anything. Oh man, don't we all sort of do the same sins over and over and it takes us a long time to learn? True repentance involves change. In fact, the word for repentance means to do a U-turn, to turn around, to change our behavior. Some of you said, how do you tell a, 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 an apology that's not genuine? When they go out and do the same thing again and again and again. And I know we have to nuance that with as sinners we do that. And we can be genuinely repentant and then fall but part of that process is being transformed in the likeness of Christ. And we change. We work to change, even if we fall again. Verse 14. This is the part where Daniel is marveling that God hasn't done more. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works He's done. He's right. He's been right to do this. We have not obeyed His voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. That is a prayer of genuine repentance. That is a prayer of sincerity. That is a prayer seeking to change. That is a prayer acknowledging God is right and we are sinners. That is a prayer of humbly coming under the mercy of God. Oh, that we see our sins in this way. Oh, that we take these four points of what genuine repentance looks like and come to God with every one of our sins in that way. But 16 through 19 give us the petition. The supplication would be the blank. Supplication. It's a plea for mercy and a plea for restoration. See, I think every genuine apology also should have the words, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? And that's in essence what Daniel does here in 16 through 19. That's how he ends. Acknowledge it, repents, genuine, sincere. I'm wrong. I've blown it. No, no excuses. Will you forgive me? I want to restore things. Verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem. And forgiveness is eliminating a debt, turning away from a debt. And so this is a request for forgiveness. Let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. And this is a plea for forgiveness. 19 also is part of a plea for forgiveness. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, 
Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. And so this beautiful prayer of repentance is ended by, please forgive me. Turn away from your anger. And what's interesting is, if you notice throughout all four of these verses, Daniel's appeal isn't because I'm just such a good person. His appeal isn't so I can have a better life. What is his appeal? You caught it in both 16 and 19. You're going to see it in 17 and 18. His appeal is to the glory of God. His appeal is for God's reputation. That God's name would be made great. That even in our sin, through forgiveness, God is glorified and His name is made great. We see that at the end of 16. He says, your your people have become a byword. They're being mocked. An object of scorn. Your name and your people should not be mocked, God, because you are a great and faithful and loving God and a righteous God. Please forgive. Your reputation and your glory is the basis. We also see in 17 and 18 a plea for mercy and restoration. It's one thing to to receive forgiveness, the canceling of a debt. The other side of, of of a genuine repentance is wanting to restore relationship, wanting to renew that we are his people and he is our God. And so we read in 17, Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon our sanctuary. And the idea is, come back to your temple. Come back to presence with people. Come back to relationship. Let's restore it physically, but this refers more than just the physical. Let's restore that relationship. Because sin and unrepentant sin always always, always breaks relationship. And this is a plea to restore that relationship. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. And it's humbly asking for restoration based on God's mercy. Humbly understanding the depth of our sin and the depth of His mercy. Our sins, they are many. Oh, but His mercy is more. His mercy is more. We're going to see the next two verses After this, next week, 20 and 21, we see while Daniel is still praying, God sends Gabriel to answer him. A really cool picture of what's going on behind the scenes in the supernatural world. As we pray a prayer of repentance, God is moved. God is always moved by genuine repentance. See, as as we look at this passage and and repentance, we can't help but think of the salvation of God, right? We sang about that this morning that we are all sinners. We all have walked away from God's truth. We all deserve the punishment, the rightful punishment that God has ordained of life without Him, of punishment in hell, of distance from God, of death. But God in His great mercy, in His faithfulness, sent His Son, Jesus Christ. And they're looking forward to a Messiah. We know the history and we know the Messiah has come. And Jesus came, lived a perfect life. He is God incarnate, God in the flesh. 
And he hung on that cross. He had done nothing wrong. And he died taking the penalty for our sins. Taking the right penalty for our sins. And then on the third day, he rose again. Defeating death. Defeating sin. Taking care of it completely. And what we know is that God asks us to take this form of repentance and come to God and say, I am a sinner. I deserve hell. I do. I deserve separation from you. I deserve your punishment. But because of your great mercy, I accept your son's payment for my sins. And I follow you with my life. That's the beauty of salvation. That is why we are here. That is why we are a church. And if you're listening from wherever you're listening and you have never given your life to Jesus, if you have never repented of your sin and said, I'm a sinner, I need God, I need his forgiveness, please forgive me because of the blood of Christ, because Jesus died on the cross. If you've never done that, oh, today's the day. Follow Daniel's example. Because at that point, God does restore relationship and he wipes those sins clean. I want to come back and worship team, if you could come back up. I want to end by singing his mercy is more again, which just fits the message of this text. Let's be a people that are willing to say we're wrong, a a people willing to repent, but then a people that experience God's mercy and forgiveness in amazing ways. Let's sing together. Today, as we end, I want to give some homework. Just because we're not having second hour, so you guys can have second hour in your homes. Uh, I just want to give, uh, especially dads, you th- some tools to lead your family spiritually. And if, if dad isn't there, moms do this. And this is a chance just for some discussion as your family to take this text and talk about it a little bit more. I have four discussion questions that I want to put up. And, and these are questions to just ask. If you have kids, ask your kids. If it's just you and and your spouse or friends that are watching with you, just talk about these things. First, what does it do to a relationship when people don't apologize or repent? I think we all can probably answer that pretty easily. What does it do to relationships when we don't apologize or repent? Moms, dads, parents, this is really important for your kids to start to understand of what it does to relationship when we don't make things right. Number two, Is it hard to genuinely apologize? Okay, yeah, I'm assuming yes, but um, why or why not? (laughs) Number three, why do you think God responds to repentance so quickly? What about his character makes him respond to repentance so quickly? And then in each home that's watching, in our home, what should be part of every genuine apology? Take the list. You can take those four things. Take what was talked about at the beginning. As a family, what should be part of every genuine apology? And let's put this into practice. But moms, dads, lead your kids through this. Families, talk about this. Husbands, wives, friends, talk about this. And let's put God's word into practice. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for your word. I am challenged by this example of repentance because sometimes I take my apologies too flippantly. And Lord, that is wrong. Lord, I pray that we as a church, as your people, would genuinely own the sin and the junk in our lives because only then can you start to change it and heal it and and you cover it with your death on the cross. 
Lord, I pray that we would be a people of repentance and a people that are flooded by your mercy and your forgiveness. Lord, as we understand our sin, help us to appreciate your grace all the more. Lord, thank you for your word, the example of your word. May we put it into practice this week. Lord, help us to be able to be back together next week and um, just enjoy sweet reunion and sweet fellowship together in your name.